You are listening to Our Urban Voices with Dr. Alphonse Javet, a podcast that presents Christian narratives through diverse voices that impact urban ministry. Here is your host. In this podcast, we cover everything from churches and church planting efforts, mission and missions organization evangelism, and unreached people groups, emerging movements and initiatives, justice, current events related to faith, and the persecuted church to author interviews, and more. Let's get to it. Hello. Welcome back to Our Urban Voices. I'm your host, Dr. Alphonse Javed. Today, I'm joined by Jackson Wu the theologian in residence at Mission One, and author of Reading Romans with Eastern Eyes. Our topic today focuses on whether it's important for Christians to understand the concept of honor, shame, and saving faith. Before we jump in a little bit about Jackson. Like I said, he's currently the theologian in residence at Missions One in Arizona. In addition to a turbulent um, upbringing in the U.S., his 15 years living in East Asia, where he was a professor to Chinese pastors, gave him a unique perspective on honor and shame culture. He regularly publishes articles and resources on his own website, jacksonswu.org, and you will find that on this site where you found this podcast. So thank you for joining us today, Jackson. How are you doing? Thank you so much. I appreciate the invitation. All right. So to start off, can you give a brief overview or, or, or example of how our culture, including implicit cultural expectations, values, and schema impact how we read the Bible? Absolutely. The influence of culture is so pervasive, so vast that uh, we could go on and on. I'll just give a few examples. Think about, for example, uh, we tend to, in in American culture, we tend to oftentimes overlook uh, aspects of money and status in scripture, and then sometimes over-sexualize certain texts. Like, for example, when Paul has clothing you know, commands about clothing, about wearing this or having hairstyles, this oftentimes you'll hear people uh, sexualize it as if it's all about not tempting the men in the congregation where, where culturally it's most likely they were issues of uh, economic status and social status. You also have subcultures, you know, we're not just broader culture, but subculture, denominational subcultures may attune us to notice aspects of say law and legal terminology and legal metaphor, but then overlook passages that have to do explicitly with honor and shame. Whereas I find that people in non-Western culture tend to be more sensitive to honor and shame and group identity, things of that nature. Actually, at a blog post, I talked about how this has been shown in social science. A writer, a psychologist named Bartlett did this research on British participants who were retelling a Native American folk called the war of the ghost and what he found is that people continually readjusted or adapted the stories you know to things that made more sense to them smoothed over details because after all they didn't have that cultural knowledge of the native americans so in various ways our cultural lens helps us to see certain things but at the same time we also overlook certain things as you know because i am from pakistan i very much understand the cultural context of uh, honor um honor killings where a male family member will murder a woman or a daughter uh, for running away 
or for being raped or simply for being born a girl are huge issues. Can you explain an honor and shame culture like what that is and perhaps give some some examples like life examples? Sure. When people speak of honor and shame cultures, it's a convenient category term because the truth is that all cultures are shaped by honor and shame in different ways. But when people talk about honor and shame culture in, say, anthropological literature, typically they're talking about a lot of traditional cultures where there are distinct patterns of behavior and thinking. So a great concern on uh, one's reputation, one's role in, uh, in a group, one's identity within a group, things like you know, family orientation are more defining to who people are. Now, when people think about honor and shame, they have a lot of uh, half-truths uh, and misimpressions. So I, when I was doing my research on honor and shame, people would say, isn't honor bad? Because after all, there are honor killings, like you mentioned, right? But in Confucian culture, honor and shame are positive moral categories, for example, in East Asia. The truth is that in every culture, there's aspects of honor or shame that are positive or negative. You know, people are familiar with the psychological phenomenon of shame or low self-esteem. But um, if I can make it simple, shame is just a sensitivity to what is proper and others' opinion. And honor is just the right to respect. The problems come in if you base that off of bad standard, right? You know, people say shame is bad. Well, no. Being shameless is bad, actually, because actually being shameless Mm -hmm. means you you actually don't care about what people think, right? Right, right. So I do want a clarification there. You said uh, when you say positive, you also said it's a moral thing, right? Mm -hmm. Honor Mm -hmm. is a moral thing. So I see your point, especially when it comes to honor killing. Help me to understand, especially help us who are in the West Help us to understand the moral part because, and I'm stepping away from our topic a little bit, but to bring us back, because we live in a society where relativism and the idea that there is no absolute truth, the moral is defined, it's, it's person to person, it changes. It's, um, it, it, it has different definition. People see what perhaps I think morally wrong uh, maybe most people in New York City may not see morally wrong. So therefore, they are not ashamed of whatever that is, what I think mm-hmm. morally wrong. And mm-hmm. they take pride in that because they think, well, that's the right thing to do. So mm-hmm. help us. I mean, that's my interpretation, but I just want to hear from you. You are the expert on this. So I want to hear from you. How do you help our listeners to understand this positive side of morals in uh, honor and shame culture? Absolutely. Well, when you talk about honor and shame in a culture, you're talking about what is what people deem praiseworthy or worthy of you know, criticism and censure. And that's at the heart of what morality is, is I deem this is valuable, good, enduring, you know, of enduring value. And, and this is something, or some of it shameful, something that we find despicable, disgusting to be getting, getting rid of, right? And it, when you love somebody, you honor them, you show them, you treat them as having value. Mm-hmm. And Paul in Romans uh, 12 famously said, love one another with mutual affection, outdo one another in showing honor, right? And mm-hmm. so uh, that uh, loving, you know, honoring your mother and father, 
you know, honoring the Lord. We understand this when we think about our faith and, and we just think about basic relationships, you know, First uh, Corinthians 10, 31, whatever we do, whether eat or drink, do it to the glory mm-hmm. or honor mm-hmm. of God. Right. And to not care about others opinion and to, to disregard people is to have no sense of shame for not to affect your conscience. So, and we oftentimes think of your conscience as just as guilt, but really more holistically, honor and shame is about one's identity. I would say that one's conscience is more of an honor shame concept in terms of saying, hey, this is good, this is precious, or this is bad, and this is something we don't want around us. Does that help a little bit? It definitely does, especially as you started with something very simple, but very important and that is uh, praiseworthy, right? So depending with which, you know, part of the reason is cultures are different and uh, people uh, think about morality differently. So there are things that they consider praiseworthy. But when it comes to the Bible and the culture of the Bible, it changes, things change. And I I like that you're already talking about uh, Romans because that was my next question. My next question is about your book reading Romans through Eastern eyes uh, demonstrates how honor culture is very similar to Roman culture during the New Testament, correct? So mm-hmm. can you, and I know, I know that you already gave a few examples and you co- quoted a few uh, verses. Can you give more examples sure. like that? Sure. And I would want to be clear that uh, every so-called honor shame culture is not the same. Because different cultures will find different things honorable and and or, or praiseworthy, whatnot. Uh, however, there are still certain patterns uh, that go across these types of cultures, and that you find in ancient Greco-Roman culture. So, uh, again, a concern for reputation. There's so much uh, scholarly literature talking about the ancient world and how uh, this was the most important thing to people was their reputation, their status, their place in society, in fulfilling their role, tradition, purity, collective identity, group identity, that you're fun, you fundamentally are where you come from and, and how you're like other people. Whereas in the West today, people tend to think of identity as uh, how they're different. Where the truth is, is that our identity is a combination of how we're alike and how we're different from others. So sometimes people make, make this distinction, social identity and personal identity. Mm-hmm. But the truth is we, we can't draw such a sharp line. Usually what I end up, I see is that honor shame cultures are just simply more aware of these dynamics. Okay. Whereas Westerners tend to just simply not be as cognizant or aware that these dynamics are going on around them until you point it out. So there is another thing, right? As we're discussing uh, different cultures, out, especially outside of uh, the United States, when we see a practice, and as I mentioned, honor killing, that's like the extreme. Of, mm-hmm. uh, that's a very extreme example. So then comes the condemnation of that, what mm-hmm. is deemed shameworthy or praiseworthy. So how do we navigate through that kind of situation, which is very indigenous to that region or that culture what do we do first as westerners and secondly as bible believing people who wants to engage in communication sure first i point out at a um, broad level uh, a writer named kwame appia wrote a book called the honor code where 
uh, he goes through all sorts of historical phenomenon where there are these moral revolutions, social revolutions that happen because uh, of the use of honor, where, for example, the end of dueling, the end of foot binding in China, the end of slavery, all of these things, part of what helped to get rid of those uh, things in history was a use of honor, the shifting of honor, and at times shame. And so there's a lot of precedent for cultures using honor and helping shift the honor codes, as it were, to bring about change. Um, at a biblical level, you know, honor and shame are relative to God. It's relative to the gospel. And what we find gloriously in scripture is this perpetual reversal of honor, shame status. That is what God sees as, or what the world sees as honorable, God sees as shameful with the, the world sees as shameful, God sees as honorable. Like for example, Christ's service, Christ's humility, his suffering on the cross, and then he's vindicated in resurrection. And so uh, at, at the heart of this is helping to subvert conventional honor, shame standards, reorienting, for example, our identity so that our fundamental identity, like an honor killing, is not our biological family, but our family that is in Christ. Okay. And so it shifts uh, uh, how we, you know, process offense and, and how we uh, respond to others when they do things that we find wrong. So um, there's a lot in that answer, but I saw a pause and see if you want me to follow up somewhere. I have many, many sub questions, but I don't want to distract the the listeners from following your train of thought so you bringing back to one uh, singular focus you're saying that okay it's the gospel if you are functioning or operating from that then you have basis to uh, are you saying correct the cultural norm well well what I, well, let me clarify uh, one thing when we talk about the bible versus culture i don't want to draw it I actually don't want to do a Bible versus culture because there are many things in the culture that are just fine. You know, you know, so honoring one's parents is pretty universal across cultures to some degree, but how people honor their parents may differ. And so I don't want to say that, you know, uh, the gospel comes in and tries to, you know, unravel everything in a culture, but rather it gets to those underlying values and concerns and then Contextually, we have to think, well, how does one honor people? Mm -hmm. How does one help not shame people uh, in unhealthy ways and so right. forth and so on? But inherent to any perspective of honor and shame is one's group identity. Because honor and shame are inherently social. There's no such thing as a person in a closet, isolated from others, who lives out, who thinks and lives out of an honor-shame paradigm. These are social dynamics. And so right. part of what the gospel does is it doesn't merely give people doctrines and theology. The gospel incorporates people into a new community, God's church, uh, the body of Christ. And that becomes our fundamental family. And the norms of that family start shaping all the decisions we make and who we relate with, how we define insiders and outsiders, uh, what we deem praiseworthy and, or not. And right. those, those are the things that uh, have an impact. It's not merely a Jesus died for you, but it's the whole story and, it's uh, and the ripple effect of implications 
so that we're living inside of a new story, as it were. Yeah. So it's a social change. Absolutely. Right. And because so we fundamentally have a new group identity. Yeah. And this social change comes from one's changed life or we're talking about Romans. So but the transformation of mind and heart. So would you say that one is accurately able to understand scripture without understanding these cultural implications? Well, it depends on what you mean accurately, uh, mm. because we're always our cultural lens is always limited. OK, right. Uh, none of us are omniscient. Uh, we can't see everything. Read scripture with a universal perspective that accounts for everything in every culture. Right. Because our culture, like I said before, it stimulates certain questions. It helps us to observe things, but it also makes us overlook things. So without broader cultural awareness and a multicultural awareness, we're going to miss a lot more. Right. As one, as one scholar says, a multicultural perspective is more objective than a monocultural perspective mm-hmm. because you have these different voices posing questions. It doesn't mean that every culture is going to get it right. It's no way. Uh, every culture has its flaws, but it has its advantages. So a Eastern perspective is going to be more attuned to certain verses and concepts in scripture that a Western may overlook and then but and vice versa. So it's not so much that we're wrong entirely necessarily, but we can be very deficient or very limited. Mm. And what do we end up doing if we don't have a broader world, global, multicultural perspective is that we end up uh, baptizing so to speak, our cultural theology and our, our theology may be right, but it's going to have a, a cultural accent on it, like, you know, a cultural twang right. that, that, that we, we don't want to settle for the truth. You know, we, we'll have the truth, but we don't want to settle for that. We want all the truth, not just part of the truth. Hmm. That's interesting. Again, you said overlook things, right? Because when you're looking at different cultures, it's so easy to wear your own cultural lens and dismiss or uh, desire something in other culture. Let me get, yeah, let me give you a real simple example of how of what I find again people overlook. Yeah. Uh, a lot of Christians have read Romans again and again and again. And I find, even though people are so familiar with it, they skip over or they don't notice Romans chapter 2, verse 7 and Romans chapter 2, verse 10, where Paul actually says, that the righteous person should seek after glory and honor and as a reward will receive glory and honor. Now, the average Westerner I know thinks that seeking after glory and honor is a bad thing. Well, not according to Paul. And I've shown this to people and, they, and you see them just stumped because they said, I've read Romans so many times, I've never noticed that. And I go, I, I know, because our brains are sometimes uh, prediction machines that we don't predict it, that we'll see it until we don't see it. So how do you see that in uh, Eastern culture? Is it a good thing? Seek honor and glory. Doesn't it go against humility? Well, not, again, not according to Romans 2. The issue is on what basis do you seek glory and honor? And, right. you know, uh, Jesus sa- he said, those who serve in John, those who serve me, the Father will honor them. And in John 17, 22, uh, Jesus praised the Father saying, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them. Okay. So uh, this is, this is our hope, our, our joy. Uh, mm-hmm. The issue is, is on what basis do we choose it? Right. Uh, that, that's the real distinction. 
So, um, so then it goes goes back to like the honor and glory he is talking about is the one that comes from above, right? God gives yes. you. It's not that. It's not the one you should seek out among men, but among men you still needs to be humble. Absolutely. Well, I was going to say that's I think what Romans the end of Romans two is really getting at is that the the Jewish opponent that Paul had in mind they were seeking honor and glory through uh, law keeping through being part of Israel. Mm-hmm having his covenants. And Paul right. at the very end says the true Jew is the one who, who seeks the praise of God. Right. Yeah. So now let's talk about missions and outreach. How important is understanding honor and shame for uh, reaching out to Asians? Well, I think it's important for reaching out to everyone, frankly. <laughs> That's because... good. <laughs> good answer. <laughs> because the truth is that we all care about status. We all care about group identity. I mean, these are, these are human dynamics. So absolutely, we have to be more overt and explicit, I think, uh, because I think East Asians are particularly sensitive to, to these dynamics. But it, it's not as if Westerners are not. It's just that they tend to use different vocabulary. I mean, think about social media. Think about sports. These are all things where Westerners are trying to find identity and, and be known and make, you know, be recognized as important. Uh, think about people who name drop, right? Uh, the clothes people wear. Uh, these are all things that where people are looking for status, and so we need to we need to be looking uh, addressing this no matter where we're serving. So, uh, so I, I think yeah, you're right that there is this desire uh, of um, associating identity with things and status and all the other things, which is not different from. Asian culture too, because there's also, you got to go to the most prestigious uh, school, you got to get the best, uh, uh, you know, grades, and that brings honor. If you fail or you lack, then, um, so this goes on and on. But let me move on. Have you received any criticism, major criticisms for reading Romans through Eastern eyes? And if so, what are they and how do you respond? The book has been extremely well received. It's awesome. Um, and so the, 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 the most common criticism, if there is a criticism, is usually at an academic point. Some academics will say that I'm too sympathetic to something called a new perspective on Paul. Uh, are you? I am sympathetic to a very conservative version of it. Okay. And not, you know, there, because there are different versions of it. There's no such thing as the new perspective on Paul. All right. And so I am more of an evangelical uh, sympathizer, not, not, I'm not along the lines extreme as James Dunn or, or those guys, but I'm probably a little more conservative than N.T. Wright. Uh, okay. I do think group identity was far more of a concern than the average person makes it out. And so that would be probably the most common criticism. Okay. Do you have any advice to give to a pastor who would like to introduce this, his congregation to the importance of cultural expectations in reading scriptures, especially those uh, who, who have no exposure to the global missions. They go from mm-hmm. Bible college to seminary, seminary to some church. Mm-hmm. Probably that church doesn't even have a diverse congregation. Uh, so what do you do? Do you have any advice? Yeah. Uh, first off, I would urge people to pick up a book called Misreading Scripture with Western Eyes by Randy Richards and Brandon O'Brien. It's a fantastic starting place where they really shine a light on all different ways that we tend to misread scripture 
with Western eyes, right? And I, that's until you start seeing how often it happens to us, it's hard to see it again, right? And so as a pastor, just pointing out along the way, here's, th- this may be a true reading, but maybe we we'll overemphasize that. Or, hey, here's an alternative reading, and here are the, here are the virtues in that. One of the things that I think the pastors frequently don't do is they don't read outside of their culture or outside the denomination and really understanding other cultures and whether even the subcultures, church, other church cultures can be really helpful for tempering our expectations. And I think when you demonstrate that for a congregation, they become more mentally flexible as well. That's some, that's some solid advice, Jackson, Uh, especially, um, you know, even if you are part of a denomination, it's so easy to just think within those parameters and not look into why some other uh, denomination or uh, other religion saying what they're saying. Anything else you want to add to this conversation? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I actually have a couple of resources coming out this fall that might help people. Uh, one is called Seeking God's Face, Practical Reflections on Honor and Shame in Scripture. And it's 101 Practical Reflections. Uh, on, on 101 different texts showing how honor and shame either shape the text or implications for honor and shame dynamics in our culture from the text. And so it's, a, it, it's a, an attempt to show people just how vast and how significant this topic is uh, in all of scripture and for all of life. Uh, the second book is on the atonement called The Cross in Context. and it's trying to it's trying to show the ways in which context matters for theologizing and for interpreting scripture. I start off by showing how so many atonement theories are significantly shaped by our our context, and I try to reinsert the biblical's ancient context into the conversation, um, so that hopefully we can get people uh, being less d- divisive divided over the doctrine of atonement, which ironically is supposed to bring reconciliation. <laughs> that's, the pro- <laughs> that's the problem you deal with every day when you're a pastor of a local church. Um, you you answer those things because divisions, even uh, a congregation, especially there's the access to the internet, all kind of content is, content is out there. And it's so easy to get hung up on certain things within certain discipline of theology. So let me make this announcement for all those who are listening to this uh, podcast. Uh, we've been discussing reading Romans with the Eastern Eyes, and he gave you two more names, upcoming two books. But uh, there are other two books. He, he wrote One Gospel for All Nations and Saving God's Face. So you have uh, plenty of resources out there. So Jackson, if listeners wants to get in touch with you or find your books, what are the easiest way? Uh, the easiest way is to go to my website, Jackson Wu, that's W-U dot O-R-G, Jackson Wu dot O-R-G. And I have uh, articles there, uh, uh, formal and non-formal articles, resources, videos, uh, access to my books. Uh, So that's the easiest one one stop place to go. And we will also be including all of that in the episode's description. Um, As we are getting ready to wrap it up. Uh, tell me quickly about your family. I think it's just important to round you out as a human person. So it will help us as the listeners to get to know you. 
Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Uh, well, I, I don't give a lot of details because of where I've worked, but we, uh, my wife and I have been married for over 20 years. I'll just say at least that much. And we have several kids and we spent most of our adult life and their upbringing uh, in East Asia. And so uh, we've only been back into back to the States for a few years now um, and getting used to American culture again, because it's quite different than when we were here before. <laughs> uh, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I feel the same thing when I go to Pakistan. My my sister told me last time, you can't just uh, go out by yourself. I said, why? And she's like, you are a foreigner now. I said, no, mm. I'm not. I was like, I had, I, I grew my beard. I was wearing shalwar kameez, normal. And she said, no, mm -hmm. you smile too much. I said, what? So oh, that's wow. a cultural difference. I did not notice. Wow. She said, you smile too much. And I was like, wow. For the last thing, because we talk about heavy topics, I'd like to ask you to tell me, uh, tell a joke to lighten the mood. So tell me a joke so the listeners can listen to you. <laughs> well, I'm a big fan of dad jokes. So, you know. Oh, yeah. I love I those, got, man. I um, love I those. a couple. Well, the first thing you got to know is I'm not a fan of elevator music. It's bad on so many levels. <laughs> <laughs> and then Literally. here's another one. Uh -huh. Here's another one. Someone tried to sell me a coffin today. I told them that's the last thing I need. Good job, man. Good job. <laughs> oh, man. Thank you so much for being on the show. Absolutely. I enjoy it. Thank you. Again, that was Jackson Wu, author of Reading Romans Through Eastern Eyes. And thank you to all our listeners. If you appreciate this podcast, please be sure to subscribe to the show and leave an honest review wherever you listen to your podcast. Tune in next week for more honest discussions from diverse voices. You've been listening to Our Urban Voices with Dr. Alphonse Javed, which presents Christian narratives through diverse voices that impact urban ministry. Please check back for new episodes every week.